Hi everyone, Mandy here. Restorative grief is all about creating easy access to healing, no matter where or who you are. That's why I want you to remember that if you want grief support beyond a podcast, there's a whole community of restorative grievers just waiting to hold space for you. Join the Restorative Grief Project through the link in our show notes or connect with me on social media if you have any questions about it. No more pretending that you can handle grief alone, okay? Now let's get on to this week's episode. Welcome back to Restorative Grief with Mandy K. Part. You are listening to episode 118 titled Shifting Our Shooting. Shooting on ourselves is an unhelpful way to try and motivate our inaction into movement. If it were effective, don't you think those of us navigating grief, shame, doubt, fear, and anxiety around our choices would be the most motivated and productive among us? This week's conversation is for the grievers who want to stop shooting on themselves and start shifting into a more helpful, gentle, and supportive inner narrative. After all, the inner world that you inhabit directly impacts your exterior world for you and everyone you encounter. What does it mean to should on yourself? Aside from being a funny sounding phrase, Shooting on ourselves is when we use shame-driven language to criticize the decisions we've made or the actions we've avoided, or even the people that we are. You're familiar with it. Your inner critic uses this language often to tell you that you should eat better, walk more, call home. I'm pretty sure plenty of instances are coming to mind, and when we repeat these statements all the time, usually without awareness, should can feel like a reasonable expectation which is probably why we continue trying it as a strategy to improve ourselves and our circumstances. But is it reasonable? We have so much evidence that should language is not only unreasonable, but often unhelpful and even harmful. Should language leads us to attempt an action from a starting point of shame or guilt. Guilt, or the feeling that we've done something wrong, and shame, or feeling like we are inherently wrong as people are not meaningful or kind motivators. So I'm gonna encourage you to drop those, okay? I've encountered mental health professionals plenty of times who actually believe shame is a healthy motivator and I completely disagree. So if you're of the mindset that shame can be useful, let's chat about why those changes aren't lasting. Think about the phrase, shame on you. You've used it, you've heard it, maybe it's been directed at you. How did the shame being placed on you make you feel? Notice what is happening in your body even now. There's a chance your embodied memories are activating your nervous system, preparing for the implications and accusation that come with shame. Shame is used to demotivate us from a certain behavior, action, or thought. We hit someone else and the parent says, shame on you, right? In that regard, you could justify it as a helpful tool. But if we continue trying to build a healthy paradigm for our life, with a demotivating strategy, we will continue approaching all areas of our life with demotivation as the most powerful influencer over our lives. Demotivation doesn't leave you feeling inspired. It doesn't make you feel strong and 10 feet tall, accomplished and powerful and ready to tackle your biggest challenges. Demotivation makes you smaller. As a parent, I am consistently banging the drum of positive reinforcement because brain science tells us how much more effective it is as a teaching strategy in the short and the long term. 
I can use redirection and reinforcement of the hopeful, positive attributes as a reminder of what we are working toward instead of shame and punishment to deter from negative behaviors. So take the long view of this idea for a moment for yourself. Imagine yourself 10 years in the future after 10 years of demotivational strategies for teaching and structure. How connected and attuned do you think you will be to the person teaching you? Are you able to sense a response of compassion and safety with them? Or do you have a sense of mistrust and fear? Maybe it's a little bit of both. What might you sense between you and the person teaching you if they'd spent that 10-year time period affirming you, even in mistakes, with positive language, redirecting those mistakes as an everyday occurrence, and helping you reframe the why behind your choices instead of using shame to force you to change? and perform how they would like. This is why our grief work needs to eradicate all the should language as soon as possible. There are no timelines, boundaries, or expectations on our grief process unless we put them in place, and shoulding on our timeline, boundaries, and expectations of grief keeps us locked in that shame-driven narrative that ultimately demotivates us from trying any new strategies for healing or integration or even from believing that we can heal. So when the shoulds creep in, we can reframe them into a more productive idea about our process who we are, and who we are becoming. When we set our own timelines, boundaries, and expectations on our grief work, we are putting an idealized experience on a pedestal, which is not a problem unless we fail to notice the gaps between who we are now and who we're trying to become. In those gaps, if we use shame, it's like building a bridge with really faulty materials, okay? We might get across once or twice, but ultimately it's going to crash and we're going to have to start from the beginning. In grief work, we are restructuring our sense of self in the world. Loss changes who we are, and that's okay. But that change requires our partnership so that we can steer the direction of growth instead of stumbling along and shooting the whole way. So take a moment and picture the grief in your life right now. If you could put a sentence to describe your experience or your sense of self, what would you write? And if you're able, it would be helpful to write this down. Once you have an idea of your present day self and experience and your assessment, picture the future self and experience of grief that you want. What does the ideal version of your grief work look like? What does a more structured, idealized self look like within reason in the next four months? Now you can visualize self a little further out than four months if you would like, but a shorter time frame can make this shoulding work more accessible to begin. Now take a moment to look back at those two sentences that you've either written out or considered in your mind and just observe them. Where is the gap between these two states of being? How far from today is your idealized grief experience? How wide is the gap between your sense of self today and the sense of self you'd like to embody? Now this, if you're not careful, is typically where the shoulds creep in. So if you notice those thoughts popping up right now with shoulding language, that is okay. These are automatic negative thoughts and they can be conquered with awareness. That's exactly what we're doing. So what should are you telling yourself right now? Take a moment and notice any shooting language that has come up. And if you can, notice how it makes you feel as well, maybe in your emotions, in your body. 
if it makes you feel disconnected from yourself or your purpose, the things you care about, or even just from your thoughts. I know a lot of people in this place would start to disconnect from themselves generally and really even go so far as disassociating because should language is violent communication and it's not an encouraging or invitational way to embrace ourselves. Remember, should language is demotivating. It may seem like it can inspire you to change your grieving habits, but a directive like you should cry less often is vague, unhelpful, critical, and mean. You can cry as often as you like, but if the idealized version of yourself and your grief experience includes less crying as your own personal intention, then we can strategize for that intention with positive reinforcement and meaningful language instead of shame for your very reasonable, expected, and welcome tears. By now, you can probably see a gap between the versions of you today and tomorrow, and you can sense at least one should statement that showed up and tried to make better of a complicated situation. Instead of leaning into the should, and we'll stick with crying right now for an example, how could we invite ourselves into a positive response around this gap we want to cross? If the idealized self cries less often, what tools do we know are meaningful support for our tears? Do we know what our tears are trying to tell us? My friend Benjamin Perry wrote an entire book on the values of tears and crying. So if you'd like to learn more about it, you can listen to our conversation from the show in episode 99 or go get his book, Cry Baby, anywhere. It's fantastic. But one thing I loved about our chat was how we discussed the purpose of tears. They're not just a leak in our hardware or a glitch in our programming. I love tears and I've talked about them a ton on the show, so I'll try not to go too far down the rabbit trail. My point is this, our tears have a reason. We're not crying just to cry most of the time. Maybe we're in pain and our brains release tears to send endorphins for survival. This isn't just a physical pain, although you could argue as much since the mind and brain is part of the physical body. And this is true for emotional pain too. Our tears are a waving flag that we need support and compassion, but we're so used to shutting down our needs and emotions that crying has been treated like a weakness or a lack of maturity. Can you see how tears, often vilified, could provide the positive reinforcement behind a more healing practice? Because I sure can. Lately, I've noticed moments in myself when tears feel ready and simply let them fall. It's been around every single stimulus you can imagine. Cute animal videos, stories of loss, hilarious celebrity impressions, joy over my child's successes, sorrow with my child's defeats and heaviness. The way I handle myself when tears fall is based on how I perceive tears themselves, my idealized self, and the relationship I've allowed to flourish with each of these encounters. It is our choice to cry when we want to, to feel deeply when we want to, to numb when we want to. When someone else applies shame and shoulds to our experience, they are denying our choice to exist how we want. In so few words, they've centered their discomfort for the sake of protecting themselves. Recently, my child encountered an adult consistently telling them they had, quote, no reason to cry. And my brave kiddo, endured and cried anyway, allowing herself to feel what needed to be felt. When we talked through the encounter, I learned that this was only the most recent in many conversations with this adult where she had felt shamed for expressing what felt like pain in her life. When others around us lack emotional intelligence, it can be challenging to even push back. 
And I helped my daughter find her own language for this person, allowing her to have a reply at the ready so she felt more self-assured and confident. But when it came to the moment itself, she didn't feel comfortable saying, my reason to cry is mine, not yours. How would you respond if someone said you had no reason to cry? Or let's imagine you've told another person, hey, buck up, that's nothing to cry about. Can you hear how that phrase invalidates the pain? Imagine the platitudes you've received, especially that one where another person insists, hey, the person you are crying about wouldn't want you to feel sad. That's not about you. That's about the pain someone else feels and the way they think you should be acting. In that moment, no matter which side of the conversation you are on, give yourself permission to pause. Your inner critic might be really noisy right now, condemning you for shooting on yourself or others. But instead of telling them to take a hike, let your inner critic speak. And notice, as it does, that it is also working to protect your right to feel how you feel. If you're the one feeling shamed, remember, you have every right to grieve, cry, feel, and express, especially when your situation is complicated, and you don't owe explaining that to anyone. I know people who've caused pain and then grieve the pain they've caused, and so do you. That doesn't mean you have no right to cry over what has happened. Maybe you realize you're the one that's done the shaming. That is difficult to navigate, and it can be really hard to recognize whether you're shaming yourself or others. And again, let that inner critic speak only insofar as you validate that the shooting language you offer someone else to keep yourself safe from experiencing the intensity of their emotions makes perfect sense. Maybe what they're going through hits on something that you've gone through but haven't yet processed. Sometimes when someone else is further along in their grief work, it can be really activating in ours. In all of this, what we're looking for is not justification for how we're acting or excuses to continue in the same harmful behavior patterns. What we're looking for is greater self-compassion so that we can become curious about why we're shooting and shaming and about what might be more helpful. If you're the one shaming another's tears, your inner critic might feel embarrassed at the lack of emotional intelligence, and that's okay. It's super helpful because now that we're aware of it, we can identify what happened and shift our behavior for next time. We can apologize for shooting on our friend or our loved one, and we can learn by asking what might have been a more helpful response for them. When we shift these shoulds into a moment of reflection, we catalyze the energy of the moment into a healing opportunity instead of allowing the energy to spike and drop us into disconnection from others and ourselves. Your noisy inner critic will be so grateful you've listened and probably grateful to be left off the protection hook too. We've allowed them to demotivate us from certain behaviors or thoughts out of fear for far too long. Now we will let them rest and instead inspire us to action and great acts of self-compassion out of love. Thank you for listening to episode 118 of Restorative Grief. I love talking about should language because it helps us identify people in our lives that are available and capable of coming alongside us while we find healing. When I first started in grief work, I began collecting all the grief professionals I could find, but it took me years and still does take a long time sometimes to notice the way each of them uses language and either positive reinforcement 
or demotivation to affect change. It's sneaky because should language often sounds like motivational speaking, sound psychological principles, or even kindness. Learning to notice it in ourselves allows us to hear it from others more clearly, and that's where we get to decide who's in our lives and shift our own approach and mindset for the better. If this is your first time listening to Restorative Grief, welcome to your new favorite podcast. (laughs) I love creating shorter essay episodes like this for you and alternating interviews with brilliant minds and grievers just like you and me. There is no one on earth immune to grief, although it will always look and feel differently for every one of us. Learning to see our grief in a new light is crucial to our wholeness and healing. So if you appreciated this episode, please consider subscribing to the show and leaving a five-star review. I love them and I do a little happy dance every time. I would also love if you could share this episode with a friend or even on your social media. Check out the show notes for more resources from Restorative Grief and the Patreon and all the things if you're interested in joining our Discord channel or gaining bonus episodes. And as always, one last thing. Please remember, the only solution for grief is to do the work of grieving. Thank you for listening. I'll see you next week.